The following presentation was recorded live at the 2015 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, visit www.bioneers.org. Just wanted to say a couple things before we dive in, and even before I introduce myself, because uh, just had the opportunity to work with uh, with a few young leaders uh, in the previous session, and one of the themes that came up uh, that I think is really integral to bioneers as a whole is that if we are, if we as a species, as a population, as a nation, and as a planet, are really to turn the corner, to address the challenges and the needs that we face right now, the only way that we're really going to achieve that at the speed and the scale required is if we do one thing, and that's to make change irresistible. Right? We, we cannot do this at the periphery. We cannot only deal with the choir, the people who get the moral imperative. It's got to make business sense, has to make financial sense, uh, and we have to meet people where they're at. And so as we look at this topic, the concept of impact investing, and for me personally, the reason why I'm really passionate about it is because at its core, it's about making change irresistible. It's about asking the question, what if you did not have to choose between investing your money in a way that generates a financial return or donating your money in a way that creates a social return? What if you could do both of those things? And in fact, you can. And in fact, it's the fastest growing segment within the multi-billion, multi-trillion dollar financial services market. So there are more and more people every day that are waking up and deciding that they want to invest their money in a way that is in line with their values. And that's really what impact investing is all about. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, thank you all for joining us. My name is Darian Rodriguez-Hayman. I'll be moderating the session. We've got some incredible panelists that will introduce themselves in just a second. Uh, very briefly, my background, my work in the world is really helping people help. And in particular, my focus is on financing social change. Uh, previously, I was the executive director at Craigslist Foundation for five years, started their nonprofit boot camp, and also wrote a book called Nonprofit Management 101. Uh, was also an environment commissioner for the city and county of San Francisco, where I got to work on the largest solar rebate program in the country. Uh, but I'm also a serial entrepreneur and in a pretty active impact investor. So I've worked with lots of groups uh, around the Bay Area and throughout the country. Uh, and again, looking at how do we make change irresistible? How do we invest in companies? Uh, and I work with Numi Tea or Gather Restaurant or Indigenous Clothing Designs, uh, the, youth, uh, the Impact Hub in Oakland, variety of other amazing organizations that are generating great financial returns and really exciting prospects, but also helping to address social impact. Uh, and so, uh, for me, this is a, a topic that's so important that it's really where I'm focusing my efforts moving forward. Uh, I have a nonprofit fundraising book that's coming out shortly, but I'm also partnering with the United Nations and next year planning to launch uh, the Social Economic Forum, really the social impact alternative to the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, uh, with a focus on impact investing, with a focus on innovative philanthropy, and really moving the needle forward in a way that makes financial sense but also generate social impact. 
so that's a little bit about me and a little bit about today's topic. But what I'd like to do now uh, is give our panelists a chance to introduce themselves. We've uh, gone to great lengths to find a diverse panel where we can really share different perspectives on this issue. It really is a, a fairly new field, and there are some great engaged people and organizations that are working day in and day out in this field, uh, and would love to give them each a brief chance to introduce themselves and their work. So Silda, why don't we start with you? Hi, everyone. Silda Wall-Spitzer with New World Capital Group. Uh, I think that New World, like the other panelists up here, we're all doing different, different slices of the markets that we're going to talk about. But um, a slogan that we like to use at New World that I think applies for all of us up here is that we are into trading up, not trading off. Uh, so we're a private equity firm that invests in environmental opportunities, and we define that to include uh, energy efficiency, clean energy, water reclamation reuse, waste to value, and environmental services. Uh, we have um, two lines of business that we follow, uh, looking within the middle market size companies or opportunities on the growth equity side and also on the structured uh, project finance infrastructure side of things, uh, which is a, a very exciting and interesting piece of the market that has only just begun uh, really developing in the last couple of years, and we're kind of excited to be on the, the front end of that. I'm going to go handheld here. Might call me crazy. Hi, guys. My name's James Joaquin. I'm uh, probably the tech nerd at the table here. I come from the world of technology, uh, originally as a repeat entrepreneur building uh, different technology companies. And back in 2007, switched over to the venture capital side of the table and have been in mainstream venture capital for a number of years. Uh, but along that journey for me, uh, I've been more and more shifting to a lens to say the best investments are companies that are actually building solutions to big systemic challenges, challenges like climate change, chronic disease, student outcomes in education, income inequality, that those are the multi-billion or trillion dollar companies of the future, and that's where we should put our capital to work. And um, Currently, I'm co-founder of a new fund called Obvious Ventures, and I get to work with some people a lot smarter than me, a guy named Vishal Vasish, who spent 11 years building Patagonia, the outdoor lifestyle company you probably know, uh, and uh, Andrew Beebe, a veteran of the solar and renewable energy space, and our co-founder, Evan Williams, who created Blogger and Twitter uh, and Medium. So we're a bunch of you know technology and venture capital guys taking what we think is a new twist on what's been uh, an existing category of social impact investing. Hi, I'm Jana Nicholas, and the CEO of Phoenix Global Impact, which is an impact investing consultancy. And we've spent the past few years helping to coordinate and grow a movement called Divest Invest Philanthropy, which is a coalition of about 120 foundations that are divesting from fossil fuels and investing in new energy solutions. Um, and one of the funds we've been working with is the Calvert Funds. And with the Calvert Funds, we've invested in a company in China called One Earth Designs. And they started off initially in Western China, um, providing solar stoves to this region where one of the biggest causes of death is from indoor air pollution, and have now expanded um, throughout the world and have amazing technology there. And so a lot of the work we do is in the environmental space, but also in, in other sectors. And it's great to be here. 
That's great. Thanks, everyone. Uh, I, I'm curious if you could share a little bit more about each of your organizations, specifically in terms of uh, the thought process that went into how you decided where to focus your efforts and your financial resources, um, and what the thinking was in particular in terms of identifying this kind of the overlap of the Venn diagram where there's the financial return but also the social impact. Uh, and obviously looking to maximize both of those for investor returns and for philanthropic returns. Uh, so kind of walk us through your process and how you landed on uh, on the areas of focus that you're looking into now. Go ahead. Uh, James, why don't you start? Well, how do I do this uh, succinctly? I'd say, you know, for Ev and, and, and Vishal and I, when we first started Obvious Ventures, we, we really started with climate change as the spark, if you'll excuse the pun, and looking at what we thought was a contrarian view um, in terms of investing in companies that can create this, this whole stack of products and services that we see uh, as the building blocks to an abundant renewable energy future. And all the technologies to do it are here today with solar, with energy storage, with bi-directional transmission on the grid. And as we looked at it, we found that traditional venture capital was running away from the category. People were hiding under their desks. The kind of first wave of clean tech investment was, you know, not so great for a lot of investment firms. And so we, we saw that as a contrarian opportunity to really rush in. But we also saw that uh, to build a venture capital fund, we needed to have a diverse portfolio of companies. Um, and th there are different points of view on this, but our point of view is you don't want to be too concentrated or too narrow. So we expanded our lens and we said, well, how do we find multiple investment themes that authentically tie together? And, and our strategy that we ended up with that we articulate is what we call world positive investing. So we look for companies where inherently in their product or service with every dollar of revenue, they're solving some big problem. They're making the world better. Uh, not in a cliche way, but in a very, very specific way. And we have three areas of investment. The first one, sustainable systems, is all about energy and resources. The second we call healthy living, and that's about health, wellness, health IT. We think our whole relationship to our doctor, our relationship to our food, our, our relationship to medicine is all going to get turned upside down, and technology is going to play a big role in that. So we're aggressively investing there. And our third and, and final theme is what we call people power, and that's about using technology to empower people to close gaps. How do we help independent businesses, the yoga teacher, the electrician, the plumber, they've been underserved by technology, but they all have supercomputers in their pocket now uh, called an iPhone or an Android phone. And so we're, we're funding companies that are building software for the smallest of small business, software for teachers to improve education. Um, and so those are our three themes and a little bit about how we ended up there. That's great. Jenna, do you want to share a little bit about sure. your work? Yeah. So on a personal level, I think what drew me to this work um, actually sort of started almost spiritually. I think it was a, a sort of deep drive for an alignment between my values and my work. And and I think seeing that in the people that we we work with. So a lot of it is with investors who are pretty new to the space and maybe recently made money and are sort of starting to think about how to have a better, better relationship with that money and are wanting to... Uh, see that alignment and see how can they across asset classes think about 
um, unlocking greater pools of capital into this work. Um, and what drew me particularly to the Divest Invest work was for foundations that are mission-driven organizations that have historically had really disconnected uh, investment teams and grant-making teams where they might be doing, in fact, even like environmental grant-making, but then their investments might be investing in the same companies that the environmental activists that they're supporting are in the money. So, so seeing that sort of disconnect historically in the field and saying, how can we have more of that alignment? And so whether it's an alignment on a personal level or on an institutional level, how are we beginning to break some of those barriers and making that an argument from an environmental and a social perspective, but also from a fiduciary perspective and that, um, and that seeing that there are you know, increasing number of opportunities, I think probably presented here, um, of generating really good financial returns by doing this work, um, but also seeing the role that sometimes concessionary capital can play at the early stages and sort of program-related investing and things like that to be able to um, unlock capital kind of across the different spectrums. From a personal level, uh, I think the... I was looking also, as Jenna was saying, to align what I believe in my values with what I was doing in day-to-day -day work. And I feel very fortunate to have uh, been able to discover and get to work with the folks at New World Capital. So I will talk about New World's sort of theory of change and what we're focused on, and that happens to be mine also. So the big concern there is also the, the question of climate issues, change, and what we can do that would have the most impact to be able to address that. And uh, the feeling is that because the problems are so large there uh, that we need to find a way not just to have the philanthropic capital, which is incredibly important to have, not just to have government involved because that also uh, adds an important layer of focus, uh, and sometimes early, early funding, early uh, uh, research into ways to make change. Um, but also, in order to really make change, we had to have private capital and that enormous flow of, of support to be able to get these ideas out into the economy and adopted on a scale that would actually be able to address the issues. Uh, so to do that, we would have to be able to make the case that we could uh, give a really attractive top-tier uh, financial returns on investments in companies that are active in this area uh, so that folks who are completely agnostic as to what they're investing in would be willing to put their money behind these, these companies because they're great companies. Uh, so what our job is at New World is to try to seek out those companies, find them, invest in them and create a track record that will show that this is possible so that uh, not just uh, impact investors per se and folks who are very tied into the importance of investing in this area are, are there, but also bringing the large institutional uh, money that is much, much slower and much more uh, risk averse and very, very scared, particularly um, with respect to anything that has the word environment with it uh, as something to invest in, I think in part because of the, the first Silicon Valley foray into um, venture and what happened with clean tech. And so that's been a, a journey to get beyond that. So 
Uh, we focus more on green energy, and we do not take tech risk at New World. Uh, so we're focused on this middle market where we're looking to um, be able to take products and services that have been proven to work. Uh, they have moved from the garage. They've built their first plant. They have the capacity to do more. Uh, ideally, they're cash flowing even uh, and help get them across what we call the commercialization gap uh, so that they will have access to the same uh, capital markets that other big companies out there have. Um, and the reason that we're focusing on the middle market, in addition to this being where the companies really have such a hard time, you know, they've taken these great ideas, like a, an air conditioning company that we found that can save up to 90% of your energy use and therefore your energy costs, uh, as opposed to traditional HVAC systems that have been around and the technology hasn't changed for 100 years, uh, and try to move that company across the commercialization gap. Um, and it is a very, very difficult thing to do, um, particularly when you're coming up against very ossified um, industries that even if you can work alongside them, you you're still different, and there's not much incentive to change doing what you've always been, been doing. Uh, so from a private equity point of view, from an investment along the, the scale from venture to infrastructure, private equity and over the years has been the place in this growth space where the returns have um, consistently been the the highest. Uh, so from a from an ideal point of maximizing your returns, this is a great place to invest. If you look at it on the, the social impact scale, um, because of the way it is, it is moving these products out into the general markets, we also feel like that is an incredibly kind of the important point to focus our efforts um, for impact. Uh, and all the companies that we're investing in are 100 percent, um, you know, every cent that is invested in them is going to work towards a cleaner economy, which is our, our ultimate goal. That's great. And I think, so. The, I mean, you talked about the idea of needing to appeal to more than just the impact investors and really looking, uh, you know, at making the financial case. And, and for me, I feel like this is ultimately uh, the promise of the green economy and the promise of impact investing. And personally, I, b I believe that part of the, the biggest problem sort of holding back the environmental movement uh, and the issue that, that gets everybody to come out to pioneers. We have thousands of people here. But when we go back into the world, there's a disconnect, right? And part of it is uh, what Paul Hawken was talking about this morning, that data alone is not sufficient to drive the change that we seek. But in my mind, part of it is also a failure of framing. And uh, a lot of what we see out in the world is sort of this code red mentality, this notion that uh, we're trying to convince the rest of the world that climate change represents the single greatest threat and challenge to face mankind. And although that may be true, uh, the reality is it's not what inspires people to change. It's not what inspires people to action. And it certainly doesn't untap the full potential of the human spirit. As opposed to, what does a code green approach look like? A code green mentality, where instead of convincing people that this is the single greatest threat and challenge to face mankind, what if we focus our energies on convincing them that this is the single greatest wealth generating opportunity since the Industrial Revolution? Mm -hmm. 
And then it doesn't matter if you believe in climate change or if you feel like there's a moral imperative at hand. There's a business opportunity. There's a financial opportunity. And even if that's all you see, then we can expand beyond the choir. And so I think that's the idea here. But what I'd love to do is put a little bit more meat on the bone and, and paint a clearer picture for the folks in the audience that maybe aren't as familiar with some of these concrete examples. Silda mentioned the air conditioner company, you know, 90% more efficient. Uh, and obviously, there's a, a pretty big business opportunity there because you're helping people save money on their electricity bill, et cetera. And so conceivably, that could be a very successful company. Uh, maybe James and Jen, I'm wondering if you could share one or two examples from your portfolio of exact, you know, concrete companies yeah. that are making money, but also making change. I have 25. How many would you like? I'll say one or two. Uh, let me tell you a couple of current ones um, that we're working on at Obvious Ventures. Well, one is a company in the sustainability space called Enbala, E-N-B-A-L-A. -A. It stands for Energy Imbalance. It's a company that, at first glance, looks like kind of a boring software company. They have built uh, technology for large utilities to help uh, go through what is probably the most significant transformation in the energy business since the invention of electricity, and that's to support renewable energy and, and distributed energy. It used to be that our whole system was designed to have a big natural gas plant or a big coal plant, and it would push energy down a wire over very long distances to your house. It would lose about 40% of that energy along the way. Once you start those plants up, you can't turn them off, so you end up with all this excess energy at night, just layers of inefficiency. And those utilities, even to this day, our, our utility here in, in, in California, PG&E, they don't exactly know how much energy you're using at your house until later when they read your meter. If you have a, a power outage in your neighborhood, they don't know until enough uh, neighbors call and tell them. And to take that old grid and turn it into a new grid requires a really fundamental change, and that's what Imbala is doing with great success. And, and they're enabling utilities to allow for things like solar and wind and, and geothermal energy to be made locally uh, and for battery storage to be used and to know when, what time of day should your building, if it's making energy, when should it take those electrons and just use them in the HVAC? When should it store them in the local batteries to save for later? When should it push them back into the grid for someone else in the neighborhood to use? It's a really interesting technology problem, but it also has a really, really powerful benefit to the environment. And so that idea of com you know, combining profit and purpose, that's you know, what we get excited about. That's one example. Second one I'll, uh, I'll mention is on the healthy living uh, side. We are investors in a company called Beyond Meat. Uh, you may have seen it at Whole Foods. It's uh, a plant-based protein company. Uh, it has a very you know, audacious goal to get uh, Americans to reduce their animal uh, meat consumption by 20% by 2025. And uh, if you're here at Bioneers, you probably already know this, but most Americans don't realize that if you don't fly on airplanes much, your biggest carbon footprint is actually hamburgers and red meat. Um, overall animal husbandry for raising plants to feed to animals to then slaughter and refrigerate and transport to then eat is about 49% of human-created greenhouse gases. It's really, really massive problem. So we think this is a really important company to create delicious alternatives to chicken and beef. We think as the population grows to 9 billion, as China comes online fast with a middle class, 
we just can't raise enough cows and pigs and chickens, so we need alternatives. So we think it's a great investment with great impact. Thank you. Uh, similarly, uh, sort of where to start, there's so many. I, and at one point I wanted to mention also you were saying about how climate change can sometimes be like, sort of off-putting because it sort of seems so far away. I think part of it's also framing it of seeing the interconnectedness between climate justice and social justice and economic justice as part of that frame. But um, with my colleague here, Darren Dodson, we've actually invested it through Calvert in a number of different funds in this space. Um, one being seventh generation. Uh, some of you may know it's a um, healthy cleaning product. It's a B Corporation. Um, we invested pretty early in that, and it's and James is on the board, so we, um, so it's great. Um, and we've also made a few investments internationally um, recently in an Africa Renewable Energy Fund, which is a two hundred million dollar fund backed by a number of um, international development finance institutions, um, and the China Environment Fund. So we're doing very similar work, um, but in in other regions around the world. Uh, there's another organization here in the U.S. that I'm a big fan of called Solstice, and uh, they do work uh, with homes where, you know, many of you may know that 80% of the homes in the U.S. aren't able to have um, solar panels, and so they've developed sources of energy, sources of solar energy to be able to power many of those homes. So really exciting company, and then, of course, One Earth Designs that I mentioned earlier, and those are just a few. Um, so... I think this is a big deal, and I, I love uh, the concept and sort of, you know, everything we're talking about in terms of the impact investing field and really the promise that it represents to, uh, you know, to help catalyze the kind of change we need, again, at the speed and the scale required. Uh, what's holding it back? What are the bottlenecks? And, and in particular, given that there's a financial case to be made here aside and beyond uh, from the social impact case, uh, what is it going to take for this movement to really scale? And in particular, how do we uh, tap into the sources of traditional capital, the huge uh, mutual funds and uh, the pensions? And how do we get those folks on board and why aren't they already? Any thoughts on that? I think we have to the results and I think some folks are are very skeptical of of the area because I think it's been politicized in a way that um, most other investment areas aren't and so I think you have to kind of overcome that that bias to get there it's any these are emerging markets if you will and so People like to see the results, and it's hard when you're just getting started. So it, it takes um, some folks who are, are willing to be the leaders in, in an area where you've got many, many more sheep who are following than you do people who are willing to be the early money and then to allow for the time. So we're just now, I think, at the point where we do have a lot of statistics that are starting to come out that are showing that the folks who are investing in this area are doing better. Uh, a number of people, I think the, the uh, Divest Invest group is actually encouraging folks to have 100% portfolios that are invested with these same values across. And, um, and folks who have been doing this for a number of years who say that and show that they're actually doing better. And so part of it is to uh, have the market understand the, that these are, are validated areas in which to invest. 
um, simultaneously with matching them up with opportunities. And it's not always so easy to be able to find these opportunities because your traditional financial advisors don't necessarily know anything about this area. You really have to kind of educate yourself and then help educate them. The larger mutual funds and, and pension funds um, they by and large are, are staying in the traditional areas. I mean, the Calverts of the world, of which there are, there are precious few, um, but are a growing number who are out there, have been investing with sort of the ESG, the environmental, social, and governance uh, uh, characteristics that they've been looking for as part of their uh, investment, as well as, I guess, uh, socially responsible, not investing in companies that are, are kind of bad bad behaviors, if you will, uh, have been around for a while. But I think they're growing, and, and the, the trend now is to move from uh, just the divesting piece of this and moving into uh, supporting companies that are actually both doing good and, and will be able to do well for their investors. It's a process. Yeah, so, so James and Jen, I'm curious, is it just a matter of timing and of the market being mature enough? What Silda's talking about is not just that you're not sacrificing financial return to invest in these kinds of companies, but in fact, they're doing better. Nielsen just said 51% of Americans, the majority for the first time in history, are purchasing from companies and products that they believe in that are in line with their values. So it seems like all the data is pointing in the right place, but the dollars aren't there yet. So is it just a timing issue or... Uh, we need more data. Well, I think there's some systemic issues, and I'll, I'll generalize and I'll probably offend some people in the generalization, but historically, the category of social impact investing has not performed financially as well as traditional venture capital, growth capital, private equity. That, uh, I believe that's changing, but that, that, number one, that perception exists and is a big barrier. Um, I think, number two, there's something fundamental about this continuum from philanthropy on one end, which is, you know, about using capital really to, you know, alleviate significant problems in the world, whether that's, you know, poverty, disease. Um, and social impact, you know, historically has been kind of in the middle of for-profit investing and philanthropy, where uh, there's been an approach to say, hey, we're going to measure both a financial return and separately we're going to measure some sort of impact return. Here are the number of solar lanterns we delivered to the, you know, to, to this emerging market, or this, this is the amount of, you know, disease we've removed and made clean water and that sort of thing. And from an investment point of view, if you step back and think about how venture capital works, we take other people's money. We, at least at the early stage, we invested in really, really crazy high-risk things. Um, and we hope that the few of them that work generate enough uh, profits to cover all the ones that didn't work. And we can uh, go back to those people who gave us money and give them four or five times their money back. That's really, really hard to do. And if you, if you from the start, say, hey, I'm actually going to compromise my financial returns and I'm going to have these other returns, you're kind of declaring failure from the start. If you want to compete and be measured in the same bar. So um, my long-winded answer, I think, you know, the work I'm trying to do is, is you know, we actually don't call it social impact. We call it world-positive investing. But create a new category, a bigger circle 
that inner circle is really important, and we, we need dollars that are in that gray area between philanthropy and, and investment, but we also need to redirect some of the mainstream investment dollars towards solving big problems, but we have to show great financial returns to do that. Last point I'll make that I think is the biggest wind in all of our sales is that the next 10, 20 years is going to be the greatest transfer of wealth in the history of the world from a generational family point of view to millennials. So the, the hundreds of billions of dollars that's going to move from one generation to another, um, there, a lot of studies have shown that, that those millennials that are inheriting that money have a fundamentally different set of values, and they want to put that money to work and invest it in a very different way. Very true. Great point. Please. That, that is exactly the case, and, and uh, you, can, you can see as you, you talk to the first generation that was doing more of the socially responsible investing, they didn't believe that you could actually get a market return to this new generation that has a, a view that you should put your money in something that you actually believe in. And I think that we're ha in the middle of an amazing uh, sort of investing revolution. And I think the notion of impact being part of our investment philosophy is going to be something that becomes the norm. And because of the statistics that are coming out and showing the success, I think it is going to be because it's also good business to do that as well. And so simultaneously with our economy shifting to this clean economy, which is where the jobs and the opportunities are for us, I think, as a society, our whole view of how we invest is changing as well. And I think it's, it's interesting. I mean, just to underscore one quick point there, um, it's not just the case that the youth of today uh, are interested in, in participating and being part of the solution from a standpoint of investing, although from the wealth transfer point that James was making, there's no doubt all the data points in that direction from their purchasing decisions. What's also interesting, though, is they also are very committed to taking an active role in championing those solutions, uh, including becoming social entrepreneurs. And I think just as a point of reference, the term social entrepreneur, social enterprise, was just invented in the 70s. Uh, and if you've ever heard of the group Ashoka and Bill Drayton, he's the one that's credited with coining that term. He's also the one who was credited as a management consultant with addressing acid rain. Remember that problem we used to have? It doesn't exist anymore because they solved it with a cap and trade mechanism. And out of that spun this concept of social enterprise, of using uh, market-driven solutions to address social impact needs. And what's happened over the last 30, 40 years that in my mind is one of the most uh, exciting and promising and inspiring uh, you know, sort of changes and movements to, to surface in recent time uh, is that, you know, if you, I guess in, in my mind, I, in, in a lot of ways, I think of this country as an alcoholic, right? We have some addictions to oil, to some other problems. Uh, but the good news is that given all the problems in, in today's society, uh, that it has created a critical mass of people that have woken up and decided that they want to be part of the solution, that have decided we have a problem and they want to do something about it. And if you look at the youth of today, I had the, uh, the privilege to teach an economics of, of philanthropy class at the business school at UC Berkeley, 38% of the students in that business school selected the program because of the focus on social enterprise, because of the focus on corporate social responsibility. So we have the entrepreneurs of tomorrow and of today 
in the universities and in the workforce. And there are more and more of these social enterprises popping up. And so, you know, I know you've done some work with youth, but I'm also curious from your perspective, is it just a, a waiting game for, uh, for this to go mainstream and those traditional sources of capital to totally. get engaged? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with everything everyone's saying. I think, um, and, and internationally as well, I taught a course similarly to a business school in Beijing and on impact investing. And it was incredible to see these young people who are both going into traditional workforce and trying to bring that impact lens and being entrepreneurs within those those companies, but also whether it's starting their own things or working or wanting to work in you know, impact-driven careers and that being even more important than even sometimes the financial incentives for working in these jobs. Mm. Um, but in terms of the sort of mainstreaming of impact investing, I think sometimes it's a linguistics thing. I think sometimes people get turned off by what is this impact investing thing? I think it's great to have sort of sometimes other frames around this, whether it's world positive or long-term investing. Um, I think there's also a disconnect um, between the investors and the investees often. And so w a lot of these institutions that are joining Divest Invest and others will say there's not enough product out there and the product saying there's not enough investors, right? So I think part of it is how are we bridging that gap and framing it in terms that um, appeal to the traditional ways in which these investors are looking at those investable opportunities. Uh, we're actually planning an invest summit for exactly that reason to try to break down some of those barriers. Um, I also think there's a metrics question um, that, you know, as we know, it's, it's much more difficult to measure the social impact of, of companies and funds uh, than it is fiduciary responsibility. Of course, there are um, standards that are being developed that I think has been really helpful for helping that to kind of bridge that gap. But I think that's a, a big part of it as well. Um, and and then framing it around fiduciary responsibility. And, and I think that the increasing case that Carbon Tracker and others have made for uh, the whole idea of stranded assets and the overvaluation of the price of fossil fuel companies um, has helped around sort of delegitimizing certain investments. Um, but I think continuing to do that across different sectors is really important. Responsibility that you just used, I think, is one of the reasons that it is so difficult to get a lot of the larger pension funds and institutional money to come here because they have sort of a, they will say they have a bottom line uh, fiduciary obligation, which is not defined in anything other than a monetary return. Uh, and so they fear when they are investing in some other things that also offer these societal values, they have to feel like they are certain that they're not in any way going to be um, criticized or somehow um, it's it's even worse. They, they actually think somehow if you do if your investments are doing great things for the world that you're somehow compromising their profits. You're, you're right. Exactly. Exactly. And so so I, I think that there does need to be, it would be great if there were sort of legislatively almost uh, some language that were codified that would, would help these folks feel like they um, were free to do a little bit more than I think they feel now. Just on that, we actually hired some lobbyists to work on that. And actually have been having some meetings with the Department of Labor about, actually we talk about rather than the prudent man rule, that the prudent woman rule. Uh, and really, and like rethinking, like how can we actually enshrine, and we talk about maybe it's one to 2% of pension funds assets being able to be allocated to more impact opportunities to just take off some of those barriers to entry for exactly that reason. So we're working on it. Yeah. Or even 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Steph, 
So, Jenny, you touched on, on the metrics idea, and, and James also brought this up uh, briefly as well. And, and I want to dive a little bit further into that because, um, you know, to your point, it's pretty easy to measure financial performance. It's dollars and cents. Um, but when we talk about social impact, uh, there's a there's a couple different issues that get presented. Like for example, James, when you were talking about uh, number of, of solar panels shipped, uh, in my mind, that's not in and of itself a, a social impact metric. It might be an output, but it's not an outcome. It's the uh, you know decrease in the uh, you know electricity that's coming out of coal plants or what have you. Um, when we're talking about uh, you know some of the health projects that you're talking about, there can be concrete outcomes in terms of number of deaths from indoor air quality. Uh, you know, so I think there's two issues that get raised. One is, is it an ultimate metric or is it a means to an end? And two is, uh, you know, when you're talking about a portfolio-based approach, you've got, you know, an environmental company that is generating, uh, you know, clean energy, another one that is uh, decreasing, uh, you know, creating more efficiency and decreasing, you know, megawatts, if you will. Uh, and so how do you create consistency and be able to tell an overarching story across your entire portfolio? So how do, how do you address those two issues in your work? And also, what are some of the standards that you're referring to in terms of, you know, how can companies and investors really assess their social impact? Well, I'll take the, the metrics uh, question from our point of view. I mean, we have a very simple answer, which is our philosophy is you, if you invest in companies where their impact is baked into the product or service, all you need to measure is revenue and profits. Uh, when you look at Tesla as an automotive company, they only make electric vehicles. They don't make any internal combustion engine vehicles. They don't separately measure, you know, off, you know, greenhouse gases or carbon dioxide offset by the internal combustion cars that are not on the road. They simply measure their revenue and they report that to uh, Wall Street, and you know, and they focus on growth and all those things that a that a, a for-profit business does. So, our belief is. You know, and we won't bat a thousand on this, but if we pick the right companies, that's all we have to do. The the wonderful irony is, we actually don't qualify for a lot of kind of impact investment fund definitions because we don't separately measure impact across our portfolio. But we made a conscious decision not to do that. Yeah, that's great. China? Yeah, so a number of the portfolio companies of the of certainly that in Calvert um, use they call gears or iris ratings. So an organization in New York called the Global Impact Investing Network developed this frame. Iris indicators are impact reporting investment standards, and it enables you to be able to really benchmark one investment against another within the impact space. And it can be challenging for really early stage companies to be able to have the data um, available to fill out these, but certainly for sort of slightly later stage companies across a broad range of different sectors. So I think they've done some great work um, sort of pioneering some uh, some metrics around that. But it's challenging because, of course, not all investors are using that and then having to have different data reporting standards for different investors. So I think it's not... Um, we still have challenges around sort of standardizing those those metrics across the industry. But certainly, that's a, it's been a great step in, in that direction. And whenever we're looking at any particular investment, that's a big part of the conversations we're having is how are we personalizing or adapting those metric standards for each of those investments, recognizing that it's so hard to be able to have kind of one size fits all. And then as sort of mentioned earlier, on the public equity side, um, 
you know, the environmental social governance standards have been really helpful in terms of being able to have a way of, again, com sort of comparing one investment um, to another in that sense. So that's what we, we mainly use. Kind of taken a different approach from James's firm, I guess. Um, if you see our materials, we do not uh, tend to present ourselves to the world as an impact firm. If someone wants to talk about that, wants to know what the societal benefits are, we want to talk about that. But because we're trying to appeal to the larger pools of capital that don't care, uh, we can't present ourselves because if we use that word impact, um, then it will immediately turn off that, those potential investors. Um, but what we do do is um, we do track the impact as, as um, best we can in terms of the CO2 kind of like uh, avoided by virtue of what it is we're trying to, to um, produce, uh, plus other measures as well, because it's not just that. There's also, you know, like you can have 100% fresh air that's being produced by a product that, that you need. So there's a health and wellness piece too. It's not just in terms of carbon emissions. Um, so we do try to measure those, uh, make them available. Uh, we use the common metrics as closely as we can to try to use what's being used in the public dialogue. Those are, as Jenna suggested, kind of evolving, and we're getting there. Uh, and then there just are other things that aren't necessarily being tracked that, that we feel like are just as important. So we do try to present those with um, the individual companies. Uh, but that is also emerging, sort of how you measure. Uh, and I do think it's important to have a sense of what's happening because we've got enough science now to know where the lines in the sand are where, that we need to make sure that, you know, we try to stay under, you know, 400 parts per million or whichever standard we're using, we've already surpassed these, but uh, to try to help address from the macro level uh, the climate issues. And so measuring where we are, how much we're offsetting, can actually be very helpful, I think, in, in the dialogue, both here and in our global talks with other countries. Great, thank you. Um, so I'm convinced. I love it. I want in. I inherited a little bit of money, or I made a little bit of money. Um, how do I get involved as an investor, as someone who's interested in aligning their portfolio with their values? Is it something I can do if I've got five grand in my savings account, or do I need to be a millionaire? And kind of what are the points of entry for the people in the audience that might want to make the transition? Great question. Uh, you know, investors always love that question. How can I give you money, right? Uh, there's, there's a myriad of answers, and we, we, we probably can each talk about our, our different entities. Typically, in you know, venture capital is considered in the financial industry what's called an alternative asset. It's not available to mom and pop um, because it's considered too opaque and too high risk. And if you had bad actors in the category, they could potentially just defraud you know, take people's retirement savings and put it at risk, that sort of thing. There have been a bunch of recent laws with the JOBS Act that have changed that, and there are some really exciting new crowdfunding platforms across all different kinds of investing where you can actually make small investments. It's specific to the kind of world positive or social impact investing we're talking about, 
there are some platforms out there where, where with, a, with a, a relatively small investment, you could be an investor on a platform like CircleUp.com, for example, which focuses on a lot of uh, uh, natural uh, health and wellness and, and natural food products. Um, there's a, a site called Mindful Crowd. Um, it's an investment fund that, that created a, a crowdsourcing platform so that when they make a VC investment, they allow the smaller investors to pool their capital and invest alongside. Um, there's a site called AngelList, which is, has a, a huge array of technology startups, and individuals can create their own syndicate. So if you find someone on AngelList that you think is making the kind of clean energy investing that you believe in or the kind of education technology investing that you're passionate about, you can actually join their syndicate, and every time they make an investment, a little bit of your money goes in as well. So there's some pretty disruptive new things happening uh, on the edges. In the center, in the traditional world, private equity, venture capital, we tend to take money from folks that are writing a minimum of a $5 million check. They tend to be high net worth individuals, family offices, pension funds, and endowments, um, and f what are called fund of funds, which is a whole other Russian doll of people investing across a set of funds. Yeah, I think um, one of the main pieces is certainly people with advise, financial advisors is um, you know, part of the challenge, I think, has been that uh, traditionally a lot of the um, financial advisors don't necessarily have experience and expertise in this space. And this is certainly starting to change. And we're seeing a lot of the mainstream financial advisors starting to develop practices in this. But there are also a number of um, firms that have developed that have specific expertise in of uh, recommending um, investments in the social investing space. Um, so that would be one thing, would be like either going to your um, financial advisor that you already have or starting to look at a new financial advisor or uh, consultants around that. The other part is, and, and James had mentioned a number of sort of networks, I think certainly for people when they're new to this space, being part of a, a con community of practice around this, whether it's locally um, or thematically, I think it's been so helpful for people to, whether it's as co-investment opportunities or even as education uh, groups. So there are a number of groups like Tonic and Investor Circle that um, are communities of people being able to explore different investment opportunities together. Um, and then it's conferences. I think there are conferences literally every week uh, um, around different aspects of, of impact investing, um, again, sort of thematically. But also, I think spending that time, whether it's as a family or as an individual, really upfront thinking about what are the areas that one cares about the most. So I think it can be a bit overwhelming, um, the plethora of opportunities that are out there. And so uh, kind of coming back to that point we were talking about earlier about values and, and that alignment of thinking, what is the impact I really want to create, and then what are the tools that I want to use to be able to do that? And then, and Calvert, yeah, and the, I mean, and I think there's something around the, I mean, so this democratizing piece that I think, and mentioned about crowdfunding, that there are, um, the Calvert Foundation actually has launched, they're called Calvert Community Notes, and there's like a minimum investment of like $25, and so it's been a great, it's one of a number of tools for kind of unlocking greater pools of capital across different wealth thresholds very important that you have to educate yourself. I mean, the, the more financial sophistication you have anyway, the better, the better off you are. Um, and I think once you know, understand the, the notion of portfolio allocation and investment, um, 
working with a financial advisor, I think you can find one at almost any level through a bank or through other sources. And, and the more you can educate yourself, the better you will be able to act in this space or in any other space. So. Great point. Um, a couple other resources and platforms that might be helpful for folks. Uh, Jenna mentioned the importance of conferences, and there are a wide range of conferences really looking squarely at impact investing. A couple that might be of interest to some of you, uh, Investors Circle does events all over the country. Uh, kind of, They have regional chapters, and it's kind of like American Idol for socially responsible business. So you know, these entrepreneurs will get up, they're screened in advance, They'll do their short pitches, and you'll have like a science fair opportunity to network with them, and uh, you know, with the uh, you know possibility of investing if you're so inclined. So that's uh, a really wonderful forum. SoCap is a great annual conference that just happened about a week ago. It takes place here in San Francisco. Uh, really wonderful gathering, uh, full of impact investors, social entrepreneurs, funds, etc. Um, opportunity collaboration happens every year in Mexico. That also just happened a few weeks ago, um, but that's generally every October. Really recommend that one. Um, the Social Economic Forum that I mentioned that I'll be partnering with the United Nations uh, is meant to happen next June at the UN in New York City. Uh, and I'm happy to talk to folks about that. There's nothing posted online yet. It's not really announced yet, so you're the first to know about that one. Um, Couple online platforms and networks. Uh, Enable Impact is another uh, kind of crowdfunding and investment platform with a focus on social impact. Tonic, with two eyes, uh, is an impact investor network that you can join, and they kind of are helping you source different investment opportunities. Uh, and RSF Social Finance is something you might also want to know about. Uh, for as little as $1,000, you can start to invest your, your money in a way that uh, can generate uh, financial returns. And they have kind of a portfolio of different investment opportunities there, uh, ranging from zero interest loans to actual things that uh, deliver return. And then also you did hear about uh, B Corporation, and that is a, a really exciting movement that in my mind, uh, as we look at business as part of the solution instead of part of the problem, Problem. B Corp is really taking the, the lead on that. And essentially, it's a new type of corporate entity where at the bylaws level, you are creating a company that exists not just to advance shareholder returns and, uh, and profits, but also environmental and social impact. Uh, and so if you're looking at possibly investing in a company that's already B Corp certified, you can kind of rest assured that uh, they're a reasonably responsible company. I also thought it might be helpful just to kind of paint a picture of sort of the spectrum of what you can do with your money with financial return as part of your consideration. And so I think for me, it starts with kind of the do no harm, uh, you know, kind of uh, the, the negative screening, if you will. I know uh, what did it for me was I, the day after I got back from Green Festival, I got, uh, you know, one of my monthly statements or whatever, and I started looking at where my money was invested, and I saw Halliburton and Chevron Texaco and these things that didn't feel right to me the day after going to a conference like that. And so I called up my, my financial planner and said, hey, this doesn't feel right. What can we do about this? And their response was, well, you can give us a list of companies you don't want, and we'll blacklist them. But that wasn't why I hired them, so that didn't work for me. So, uh, so I fired them, and I hired a company that does socially responsible investing. And uh, there's a variety of companies in the exhibit hall here. Uh, but in general, the idea of uh, sort of screening out the bad companies is kind of step one. 
Uh, shareholder activism is another thing that's big in the in the SRI community, where they're actively uh, representing you at shareholder meetings to voice concerns about environmental and social responsibility. Uh, and then in an ideal world, you're positively screening companies. And that's really what the concept of impact investing is based on, is not just stocks and bonds, but looking at investing into companies uh, and other mission-led organizations that stand to provide a financial return. So that's kind of, uh, in broad strokes, some different options. But uh, before we, uh, we hand it over to the audience, because I want to hear some of your questions, I do want to uh, just ask one last question, because Jenna, you talked about your work in the divest and invest movement. Uh, and you know, given my background in the nonprofit sector and, and in the foundation world, uh, it's always kind of struck me as a bit odd uh, and actually, you mentioned the example of kind of uh, fossil fuels. I, I made the mistake once I was giving a keynote down uh, for the Conference of Southwest Foundations. So this was all the Texas foundations. And I used the example of, well, maybe if your foundation exists to address environmental issues, you shouldn't have the 95% of your dollars that are in your endowment invested in fossil fuels and uh, petroleum companies. And the whole crowd went, oh, that's not OK. We're from Texas. Um, but in general, I mean, I feel like philanthropy has a major role to play in this movement because they are fundamentally mission-led organizations. And for the most part, they're typically really only allocating 5% of their funds, which is what the IRS requires of foundations, that go out in grants every year. The rest is in their, their corpus, their endowment, in stocks and bonds, some of which create the problems they're trying to solve. So from your perspective, and if the other panelists have anything to add, what is foundation's role, what is the foundation community's role in advancing the impact investing field? Totally, I couldn't agree more that the foundations can and have been and could be doing more um, around playing this catalytic role. I think one of the main ways is through a kind of risk capital, right? And so being able to provide this early stage capital, whether it is through grants or also there are structures that have been set up here in the US for foundations, both program-related investments and mission-related investments that enable foundations to make investments into social impact organizations uh, where the goal is, is the social impact. So that it's not about maximizing return, but it's about having a social impact, but rather than it just being grants to nonprofits, it's investments into for-profits. So I think having vehicles like that and having more and more capital being invested through program-related investments is powerful. I think there's also a powerful thought leadership space. So a number of foundations, the Rockefeller Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, and many others um, have provided a, a good amount of capital to supporting some of the research in this space, doing convenings. Um, so I think all of that's helpful in terms of sort of building the ecosystem around this. Um, I think that there could still be more. Right? I think that the, the challenge is that exactly this historically, the sort of separation um, and literally a wall between the investment team and the grant making team. And we're starting to see that be broken down more, um, certainly around the divest invest work, but even other things like tobacco and like other investments that, um, that the investment teams of foundations are making. So and my hope is that with this 100% sort of impact portfolio activation, like we'll see uh, foundations playing even more of a role in this That's space. Yeah. And just to be clear, I think this is, you're talking about it on an organizational level, but this is what individuals do in their head is sort of compartmentalize, okay, this is the money I'm gonna give away to create social impact, this is the money I'm gonna invest with my only concern being financial return. And fundamentally what we're talking about is tearing down the walls, both within foundations as well as within ourselves. Bless you. 
if you invest in profitable companies that generate impact, it's the it's the most scalable, most sustainable impact there is, right? They don't have to be on a hamster wheel fundraising every year. They can do more and more of whatever that product or service is. Absolutely. Okay. There's one thing that has to the the notion of impact, um, and each one out here investing something in impact. If you want to think about what ultimately is it that you want your impact to be, uh, if you're just putting a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit somewhere else, uh, one of the, one of my, my colleagues likes to call it green measles because it doesn't necessarily add up into anything. And so the notion of speaking to other people who are like-minded or thinking about what you're doing in a larger context to try to build or add on uh, so that you're bringing more capital to a particular area. Uh, if you're going to be doing something you really care about, be the first money because the first money is like a magnet to everything that comes after it. So you have to really do your homework so you're not taking a risk that you don't want to take. But if you are willing to be a leader as an investor, you can have far more impact because the other the other capital will flow. Um, and I share the frustration with these foundations who do pay for all the studies, but they have been very, very, very slow to put their money to work mm -hmm. on the actual investment side of what they do. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's take some questions from the audience. Um, while I'm waiting for some hands, I do want to just quickly share two invitations for all of you. Uh, one is for those of you that are interested in uh, carrying on the conversation after this panel and the, and the Q&A session right now, uh, after this we are going to have a round table in the summit tent, uh, which is right next to the sun stage, and that'll also be on impact investing, but it'll be a round table where every participant will have an opportunity to sort of introduce themselves, uh, share a specific challenge or question or issue, and really tap the wisdom of the group. Uh, and identify resources and solutions. Uh, so that's coming up right after this at 6.30 at the Summit Tent. Um, and then the other thing is I want to invite all of you guys to my house for dinner. Uh, so uh, once a quarter, I host an Impact Investor Happy Hour at my house in San Francisco in the Mission. Uh, and actually, Joshua Fouts, the executive director of Bioneers, is the celebrity chef. Um, so it's about 20, 25 people, all active impact investors, people working in the movement and in the community, coming together in a really casual forum uh, in my place. And then I also co-host that uh, with Kristen Hull, who hosts that uh, in the East Bay every other one. So about every three months, if you want to give me your card or I can give you mine afterwards, happy to have you over. So let's take some, uh, some questions. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, my name is Sergio Zdransky. Uh, I'm, com I co I'm working primarily in Mexico and Kenya on community renewable energy. Uh, Ashoka, Ashoka Fellow as well. <laughs> and I would like to, you know, while I agree with everything that has been said, I would like to uh, raise uh, one of the difficult questions. I think a, a very positive evolution is that, yeah, we are seeing this, this kind of like a watershed moment where impact investment isn't seen anymore as something marginal where, you know, it's presented, there is this discourse that we have heard today as, you know, this can beat conventional returns. This is good on one hand. On the other hand, it, I think it has the risk of putting a lot of pressure on extracting as much profit as possible mm -hmm. from uh, social entrepreneurs, uh, well, social enterprises in general. 
And you know, I, you know, this is not something abstract. This is something that is happening, and it's leading to negative impacts. I, you know, in, specifically in the in the area in which we work, renewable energy, uh, it's leading to land grabs. It's leading to violation of indigenous rights. It's leading even to killings and violence, which is something that we don't want to see associated with green, with green energy. One of the most important assets of green energy is that everybody loves it. We don't want it that intangible asset. Yeah to be tainted by this pressure to just get as much profit as possible, even if that means screwing people up and stealing their land. So uh, I think, uh, you know, how do we deal with this risk? How do we avoid overselling? And how do we actually get the point across that reducing risk, not only increasing profit, but reducing risk, is one of the very positive things that impact investment has to put on the table? Just shift the discussion and the discourse, not only from profit, but also to risk reduction. Thank you. Great. Great question. Yeah, how do we navigate that? I, I think that that concern is valid in a zero-sum game. If it's a tyranny of the or, if you're saying that money can go to you know, social impact or it can go to this kind of new, more profit return focus lens. My hope is that it's not a tyranny of the ore, that we actually widen the circle, that we pull a lot more traditional capital in to building these world positive companies that are solving big problems. And that actually is a rising tide that lifts all boats. And then there's more dollars into social impact and philanthropy as well. That's my hope. I also think if there's really an E, an S, and a G focus that you're looking at in these companies, the G focus is governance and having a board that acts responsibly and puts uh, policies in place within their companies that are uh, supportive of social social impacts, I guess, if you will. And so I think the more that you look at the companies holistically and not just looking at buckets and I'm investing in this because it's environmental or that, if, if you're investing in a company that uh, is following governance procedures and valuing those, I think you're going to actually end up with situations that are um, less horrible than the ones that, that you are describing. Um, so hopefully we will just be better as companies as well as uh, societies. Yeah, I think it's a great and really important question. And, and I think but also around unintended consequences, right? And we like use all this language around impact investing, but how are we actually engaging with the communities that we're working in? Um, the frame we often use is around a just transition around fossil fuels. And the, the Chorus Foundation, for example, has been doing some amazing work in Appalachia around actually engaging people who are being disenfranchised by the coal industry and thinking about what are the new jobs that are being created around this. And so rather than it just being impact is necessarily there because this is a renewable energy company, as you know intimately from your work, um, isn't necessarily the case, right? And so I think thinking about that, and that's why I think all this impact assessment piece is so important and, and an engagement rather than just uh, because they're using the right language, suddenly it's become an impact investment. Great, thanks. We've got a question back here. Hi, my name's Kevin, Project Drawdown. Question is about the maturing of the impact uh, investment ecosystem and your perspectives on two sides. One, I work with and get to see a lot of early stage uh, R&D stage companies moving to proof of concept, working on either sustainable agriculture or diversified renewable energy. 
And I'm wondering what you're seeing. Uh, this would be really small bite-sized type of things for say professional private equity. And I'm curious what you're seeing in the ecosystem of impact investing that might be a fit for that. If you're seeing PRI or individual angels or what you're seeing in terms of the education there. And then the other side, I also work with a lot of entrepreneurs who are, have impact business models, maybe are even at cash flow positive, are needing capital to scale, but they're very skeptical of the timelines for liquidity that professional private equity imposes upon them. And so they're very scared or reticent to even have the conversation with that, that type of funding. And I'm curious what you're seeing on the evergreen side of potential other liquidity models, other exits, or what's evolving there. Uh, I'll start. By the way, thank you for skipping your own session to uh, attend our session here. Um, great questions. A couple things, um, you know, that I've seen. Uh, Darian mentioned RSF, social finance. Uh, I've seen them very active in providing a, a kind of long-term patient capital for the kind of business that doesn't meet a venture or a private equity uh, scale or time horizon. So I think, you know, there's not enough, but there are some financial instruments out there. The other mega trend I'm seeing, and I've done a bunch of investing in the kind of natural products category, and those companies tend to be slow to build. I mean, seventh generation, we just celebrated our 25th year anniversary, right? So, um, I've seen a mega trend of family offices, and we talked about this wealth transfer. I think we're gonna—that's gonna 10x this notion that there will be family offices that are instead of giving their money to a firm to manage, they're going to actually select direct investments that match their mission and their values, and they can invest on a 50-year time horizon. They can invest around a holistic picture of what the company does, why it's important, and what kind of financial returns it can deliver. So I think that's going to help. Great. Um, I'll also just mention, uh, if you've heard of Cutting Edge Capital, there's a model called Direct Public Offerings. Uh, those have been really effective for submission-led organizations. Were you going to add something, Sylvia? I was just going to look at solar in terms of the, the liquidity issue, because I think that is important to a lot of investors, particularly after the 2008 uh, period. Um, so what's happening is at these, as these markets mature, there are secondary markets that are beginning, beginning to form. You see it most clearly in solar, where you've had the rise of the yield co's, for example, although I don't like to use those because I, uh, but the notion is that you can bundle solar projects, for example, and then there will be another party that wants to purchase them. So it could be for, for other project finance as well. Uh, and so the idea that you have to hold on to an investment forever is not necessarily the case. Also, some of these markets are growing so fast. Um, we invested in a um, company that's in the solar supply chain they, uh, called Solar Edge. And uh, they uh, have an optimizer and an inverter system that is used to kind of move the energy that comes is collected on the panel, if you will, to, to move it along the energy highway to get it out onto the grid. So you have to have one of these inverters. And, and so uh, they are able to provide, uh, they just got a better system for it. 
let's say. And so within six months after we made our investment, they actually did an IPO, which is not something our firm focuses on as an exit, but it happened. And before that, we had invested in a residential solar installer. That um, that market is hugely growing, and they were acquired seven months after we made our investment in them. So it's surprising that you can have companies that have these Horizon 1 exits as well as Horizon 2 and has Horizon 3. So I think as the market matures, a lot of that is going to take care of itself. Yeah, and just on that secondary market piece, I think that's partly what's powerful about having these communities of, of, of impact investors that are developing. So Tonic, for example, I know there's a lot there around looking at the secondary market of exits, recognizing that a lot of these companies aren't necessarily going to IPO or very far away from IPOing, uh, and the power of being able to sort of sell within communities has been sort of a really interesting part. And the PRI piece that you mentioned, we recently invested in, um, in DBL, Double Bottom Line, the fund out here, and you know, a lot of the capital coming into that was from program-related investments from foundations. Great, thanks. Hi, Kim from Global Success Fund. I just want to mention, um, in addition to the accelerator programs and the funds that exist, um, that one, uh, one, one specific Coast Bank, actually Beneficial State Bank, uh, New Resource Bank, there's other banks out there, and New Resource Bank is actually a B Corp as well, uh, that you can actually put your money, your savings, or your checking accounts, uh, donor advised funds, pay for success uh, funds. There's other types of investment vehicles that exist. If you want to mention any others, uh, that'd be great. But my other question really is, um, I get this all the time of, can we work for you? Who can we work for? How can we get involved? And with greater than 50% of the students graduating with uh, undergrad or, or business degrees or MBAs wanting to be in the impact investing space and looking for work, other than becoming a social entrepreneur and obviously emerging uh, entrepreneurs in general having a difficult time getting capital, uh, what advice do you give so that doesn't become like a burnout where I know people that go, I guess I got to go work for the mainstream bank or I guess I got to go work for Salesforce because I really can't get a job in this. I can go ahead. Yeah, I love it. No, this is why this is like one of my favorite topics. Um, so talk to me. I'm happy to talk to them. But I mean, really, I think part of it is is that network, right? I mean, I, I find it's sort of the same piece of like investors wanting to find entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs trying to find investors. I think it's the same thing with talent. Like there is so much talent that wants to work in the impact space, but there's also so many organizations that really want to recruit great talent. So I think part of it is that the disconnect between the two and how are we doing a better job at, at kind of connecting those dots. And there are platforms like Idealist and Rework and, and others that are, are doing that. But I think also the informal piece of just starting to connect people to whether it's different funds that are hiring or foundations or um, social impact companies. Um, the Global Impact Investing Network also have a bulletin board of jobs that's, that's great. Um, but I think it is. I think it's one of the challenges is the... Um, is how to unlock more of that talent and provide more of those, those entry roads into it. I do want to mention one other um, sort of instrument. You mentioned pay for success, and we haven't talked about social impact bonds, but just briefly, I think social impact bonds are also an interesting sort of innovation within the space, and uh, these are private-public partnerships that have a pay for success instrument as part of it and started around recidivism rates um, in the UK, but the, now there's now a number of social impact bonds uh, around the world. Uh, green bonds are another vehicle that people are in, investing through, um, and as you mentioned, donor advice funds. So I think it's it, as part of this sort of looking at impact across asset classes, sort of not the, the impact, the private equity part is a super exciting part, but also thinking about some of those other asset classes as well. Great, thanks. 
questions over here. Uh, maybe while I'm walking, I want to encourage folks that are interested in Pay for Success to talk to Kim. She actually, uh, through Global Success Fund, created a, a new impact investing model. So she's launching a fund uh, with a focus on supporting uh, female social entrepreneurs in Colombia with a Pay for Success component and an investment component. Cool. Great. Thanks. Uh, Stuart Valentine from Centerpoint Investment Strategies. I, I've been in the investment advisor role in the SRI space for 15 years, and just comments on metrics is that I actually take the thesis that we're through the tipping point, that the intellectual case has been made, the financial case has been made. And if any of you attended Tom Van Dyke's presentation, he showed demonstrably that actually the fiduciary risk right now is not having an ESG-driven strategy because the numbers are in, which is very hopeful because now our job is to get into a leadership position and coach those boards and through shareholder activism, which if anybody has a mutual fund investment, there is a plethora of alternatives where you can come in through a Parnassus door or a Green Century door or a Calvert door, and now you are participating in the shareholder activism process you're helping to lead those companies out of an old paradigm of thinking into a more activist investment position. And one little data point, uh, the U.S. Uh, Social Investors Forum, USIF.org, you can go see the trajectory of money under management through a screened mutual fund uh, process has gone at the end of 2012, it was $3.5 trillion. At the end of 2014, it was $6.4 trillion. So it's not inconsequential. It's better than 20% of the public market today. So really, there is no case that says uh, this is going to compromise financial returns. That's, that's behind us. So then it's incumbent on us not to be followers <laughs> and to see what we can do. Now, I also direct you to Green America. Uh, uh, Elisa Gravitz, who I'm sure has spoken here at this conference, uh, greenamerica.org, where you can not only convert your credit card, you can get involved in a community uh, investment bank and start moving your money to back up the vision that we are all holding here. Thanks. Wonderful. Thank you very much. I think we have time for one or two more questions. Over here. There you go. Please stand up. <laughs> Next time. Hi there, uh, Gregory Altman. Um, until just now, I was working with uh, Gora Partnerships, which is an impact accelerator. And going back to the alternate structures issue, and as well, um, just in general, the traditional structures tend not to fit nascent impact companies very well. Debt equity. And one que the question I have for you is, uh, one structure that I've found that seemed to make the most sense is a demand dividend or revenue royalty, something that's been championed by John Kohler at Santa Clara. And my organization actually pioneered or did one of the first deals in this realm. And I, even internally this year, I was like, hey, why don't we push this forward? And no one seemed to want to. And I've heard about some, so what are the drawbacks? And so for people that don't know, it's based, it's a, structure that the payback is based upon cash flow, getting a share of cash flow. So you're not getting anything unless the company is healthy enough to give it to you. And you can get equity, to the, the short of it is that you can get equity type returns in about you know, three years-ish averages if things go well. And you're not, take, you, you're not taking it too soon and you can structure what your, your X is, your, your, your return is. So the question is why isn't it Popular? Have you seen drawbacks? I've heard about tax implications. 
Um, have you looked at any deals in this regard? Have you done any? Thank you. Can you, can you describe the, what it is you're doing a little more? What, it, what I, it, okay. Yes, what you're what talking about. Role, so my, oh, the deal itself? The deal itself. Okay, so if um, you're the investor, yeah. the deal is you will get uh, a share of like maybe 60% what's of cash the, flow. What's the industry or what oh, is It could be any industry. Doing? Impact, let's Let's, let's get Darren it. on the mic. Yeah. I can answer the question. Okay. Do you want to hop on that mic? Take this mic. So, yeah. it's, as you mentioned, it was a, a structure pioneered by John Kohler. Um, and Agora and uh, your organization is a good friend of ours at Calvert. And essentially, the, there are some issues for foundations and particularly 40 Act Mutual Funds in investing in that structure um, that we went into quite a bit. We love the structure, and for some companies, debt is a lot better than equity. And I think the philosophy is generally that early-stage impact investment companies that can pay a little bit of revenue why not underwrite them in a way that's unique to their structure and not take equity, which is like more Silicon Valley, uh, you know, ask. And that's essentially, but there are some challenges with, with it. We can go into more depth. I'm happy to talk to you one-on-one. Okay. Thanks, Darren. All right. We've got time for a couple more questions. Uh, my name's Nikki Davies. Uh, I'm a, I've been working in the climate change space, not in finance, for about 20 years. This is all quite new to me, so thank you very much. And thank you for making it very accessible to somebody who doesn't know very much about it. Um, but having worked in that space, uh, one of the things that we are dealing with is that uh, our institutional frameworks have been established over decades to support things like fossil fuel companies. And so one part of my question is like, what are the institutional frameworks that you are finding uh, have been set up to support uh, non-impact uh, investments and how, what do we need to do to change that? And then secondly, uh, you know, the fossil fuel companies really are starting to fight for their lives and we're having a big backlash that we as a movement are having to fight. So I'm interested to know what you're experiencing in that space and the sorts of things that need to happen in this space to fight that as well. Well, go ahead, please. I, w I would start with the, the US tax code when it comes to fossil fuels. And there are a number and, and, other, and other kind of hidden subsidies, if you will. So it is very, very, very hard to try to find the number for what these hidden subsidies are, but they are, uh, if you look at the REIT structures and you look at the master limited partnership structures, master limited partnerships are specifically um, prohibited from applying to uh, the alternative energy categories. And in fact, that's sort of how the yield codes have come to grow up uh, as, as kind of a rough equivalent for providing the benefits that would be provided through these master limited partnerships. So there are a number of things that are there that, that the uh, fossil fuel industry does not want us to really focus on as being a subsidy and then they instead are hammering on the, uh, the solar and other alternative uh, subsidies that are a bit more, more direct in terms of what they look like and in fact are kind of being peeled off or, uh, gradually or uh, are not being renewed and come up for renewal year after year. So it's very, very hard to plan uh, based on whether they're going to be there or not. So, so there are billions of dollars worth. Um, 
there are there. I think it's a great question. Happy to talk more offline, but I think that, and we talk about it with the apartheid, like the institutional framework that's set up with apartheid, there was an, it was necessary to have a similarly like, structured strategy to combat that. And I think it's the same thing with the fossil fuel industry. And I just met this lobbyist that works for an oil company, and he was talking about the need to combat that. Is ju we needed just as much smart thinking to be able to engage back. I think there's like structural things like around a carbon tax that is like necessity. Um, but I also think it's like at these types of conversations that we're having and like connecting the dots between those conversations so that we're not acting in isolated institutes. And that's where I think these communities of practice is so valuable so that the power that we have as a collective force, particularly in the lead up to Paris and the COP21 gathering that's happening in December, I think it's a very exciting few months around sort of galvanizing power around that. Thanks. So we have time for one last question over here. Thank you. Uh, very valuable information. And um, I'm wondering, I um, am in contact with a number of, of companies that are starting up and have, uh, to me, very exciting technologies uh, and um, potential products and services that they're offering in the green energy water resource space. So if, if I'm, uh, how do I, what, what's my role in, in that um, relationship between, you know, if I'm talking to them and I say, oh, well, maybe I can find you funding. Um, what would be my role in in getting them in touch with you and because i'm not a i'm not a broker i'm not you know licensed or in, in any way do i need to actually have a a a, a board position on that on that company to uh to ask for funding absolutely not i mean you, there's no uh requirement uh, for you to have any kind of formalized role. There's no regulatory limits. You, you can make, in, you can broker introductions to investors for entrepreneurs. Uh, selfishly, what you might want to be is you might want to be an advisor to that company and you might want to get some, some, some common stock if you're going to do work and actually help them. But that's between you and the companies. But um, there's no legal or uh, process hurdles between you and introductions you want to make for those folks. Yeah, the only uh, legal consideration is if you're charging some kind of finder's fee or commission, uh, then you do need to be a licensed broker-dealer. Otherwise, it's technically illegal. Um, and I'll so do a quick commercial for you know early-stage companies that want to get in touch with Obvious Ventures. Go to obvious.com, and just there's a big Get In Touch link right on the homepage, and we've got a really cool little... Uh, form that asks you some information about the company, and then we send you some some cool stuff back, and that goes right into uh, our kind of CRM system of deals that we look at every Monday morning. So that's the best way to get in touch with us. Great. Silda, what about you, if people want to learn more about your organization and get involved? Well, you can go to the, the website and look up, make sure that the company is kind of in the, the area that we're investing in, the stage we're investing in, uh, although we get a lot of early companies as well, and sometimes we, we track them. We can send them your way, but we also track them as they grow. Um, we try to do both because we like to work in partnership with all the firms out there that are trying to work in this, this space. So I would go, and you can also just 
look up the phone number, give us a call. You can ask for me or anyone who's at the firm. It would be and great to hear from you. What's the website? Just so it's quick. newworldcapital.net. All right. And Jenna, how about you? Yes, so on, on the Divest Invest side of things, anybody can sign up with as an individual, as a foundation, as any institution on divestinvest.org, and I have stickers here. And there's also a, um, a table in the summit tent where we'll be heading to afterwards uh, if people want to have more information about that. Um, and then my organization's website is phoenixglobalimpact.com. So, thank you. And, uh, and feel free to talk to me if you're interested in learning more about the Social Economic Forum at the UN next year, uh, or if you want to be added to the mailing list for the Impact Investor Happy Hour. The next one of those will be this coming Monday night uh, in San Francisco in the Mission. Um, and then also, as uh, you just heard, we're also going to be heading to the Summit 10 after this uh, for the Impact Investing Roundtable at 6.30. So I hope you'll join us for that. And I also hope you'll join me in thanking our panelists for all of their great insights and input and the great work they do every day. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your conference. And thank you for being part of the solution. <laughs>